Welcome to AWS Redux, the Turing Group podcast. I'm Chris Recksteiner. Today with me, I have Eric Donowski. Hey, Chris. How are you? Thanks for having us today. Uh, I'm Eric Donowski. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Turing Group and responsible for uh, pretty much everything technical that happens here. Excellent. And with us, we have Andrea. Uh, I'm Andrea Credo. Thanks for having me. I am... uh, Director of Development uh, Turing Group. I probably am the point when it comes to serverless and uh, uh, development and consulting for new clients in uh, the serverless space. Excellent. So we're going to have both the business and the technical elements of this that will get merged together in our discussion today. So let's dive in. All right. So what is serverless for Turing Group? How are you viewing this? How do you see it? Evolving. Let's start right at the beginning. Sure. Um, I think f- for us, serverless could be viewed from a couple of perspectives. I think probably the classic, you know, technical definition is that, you know, there's no underlying infrastructure that you have to manage. There's no operating system. There's no virtual machines. There's no instances. There's no, you know, visible processes. There's no, you know, anything that has to be taken care of on a regular basis, right? So, so from that perspective, you know, the sort of purely technical definition, I think that's, you know, how it can be viewed. But on the flip side, I think that serverless can also be viewed or defined from the perspective of what benefits it offers in contrast to more traditional sort of monolithic style applications that do require an infrastructure. Okay. You know, so why, you know, I think it answers the question of, well, why is getting rid of an operating system or an instance meaningful, right? Mm-hmm. Why, why do we care about that? And it's the outcomes and sort of the results of that that are interesting to us. How connected are those outcomes to the transition of serverless? Because serverless is very much a technology focus. It's very much a technology thread, yet the business outcomes on the other side are very disconnected from that. Are you seeing organizations recognizing that, or are they approaching one side or the other? Are they approaching it purely technically or purely from a business side? Uh, I think it's primarily from a business side. Okay. You know, we'll get approached, and it's not like our customers are coming to us and saying, "We want you to build a serverless application." Okay. The, the the questions that we're getting are, "We want to build an application. We want it to be in the cloud. We want it to be low cost. We don't want to have to pay a lot of money to run it when we don't have a lot of users. We don't want to. Uh, we want it to scale automatically. We don't want to have to you know manage a whole bunch of infrastructure." We're getting asked for the results of serverless and the benefits of serverless and not necessarily, you know, serverless explicitly. What is that core benefit that they're targeting? Because if you go and you look at the industry analysts and what they're writing about today, everything sort of defaults back to this idea of agility. And that's become such a buzzword, but it doesn't really mean anything to anyone. It's like, well, we're going to be more agile. Okay, more agile than what? What is that sort of threshold that you're trying to get? So when they're looking at those business benefits, how are they quantifying that? Is there a specific way or is there is it very unique to each organization? I think it's unique to each organization and each individual and specific uh, implementation that we go after, right? So depending on whether we're building something to support, you know, devices and, and IoT versus building a you know, serverless-based web application versus real-time data distribution, whatever that solution is, um, the needs and drivers for that are going to be slightly different. So it's not necessarily per client, but I would say it's per application. How 
rapidly are they expecting to see these benefits? Do they recognize that this is a significant transition in the organization, both technically and culturally? Or is that something that needs to be brought to the table to help people realize that this is a very big deal? Yeah. Uh, their expectation is immediate. Uh, I think that that the you know marketing around serverless, the marketing around cloud seems to by default indicate that you get all the benefits of those resources and those styles of click your heels three times yeah, and yeah, you're home. You just get it out the door, right? But you know, in a classic model where you might be deploying something in a in a monolithic um, solution, you don't get low cost and automatic scalability out the box. You have to build all that stuff. Um, what serverless does is it allows us to achieve some of that much more quickly rather than having to design it into the application from the ground up. Now, are you seeing a lot of the requests or a lot of the interest coming in in the re-architecture of applications as sets of services that an organization will also be looking to take outside, basically to enable their partners and enable their ecosystem? Like, Are they commingling these topics as they come together, or is that really a completely different undertaking? Um, I think with the recent release of the serverless application repository from Amazon, that's much more the case. Uh, I think originally people viewed uh, developing serverless applications as, yes, a, a suite of microservices you know, deployed as Lambda functions. And uh, the idea being is that you know, they serviced an internal purpose or hosted an external application, but not something that maybe you would hand off to a customer or a partner. Uh, but clearly the need for that is there. And now with the serverless app repository um, and the framework that provides is you can then develop a client or an application or almost even an SDK uh, and, and deploy it and share it with potential partners and clients. And that's a really unique aspect of the AWS platform because any data that exists on the platform is now essentially accessible. And you can even look at it from a VPC um, model if you wanted to. Not that it's an ideal way to do it, but it's there and you can then extend these to other partners or other customers in a very intelligent and very quick way. I think that's pretty unique because if you look at what um, Google just recently announced about removing VPNs for remote work, it's like there's a lot of really big implications of that, but if the at some level, it really is sort of a catch-up, and I don't want to cross those streams, but it's very interesting to see that happen, where it's all of a sudden everything becomes very non-aggregated, the castle right. sort of coming down, if you will. Um, but I don't think everybody has really understood what they can do with it yet, and that's what makes it very interesting, at least from our perspective, and I'm guessing from yours as well, where people come in with ideas, and there's this whole new tool set, there's this whole new playground that you can create, and it isn't just creating technology, it's creating business value. Right. And those connections are something that might not have always been there, but right. now are really right. readily available. Right. Yeah, the space is evolving quickly. And, and I think Andrea could probably talk to this a little bit as well. But when the serverless model and concept kind of first came out, there were not necessarily clearly defined patterns for how do you develop a serverless application? You know, how what's the best way to structure it, and how many pieces should there be, and should there be a Lambda function for every service, and maybe every API endpoint, and how do you host static content in S3 but make sure it's being authenticated properly? There was no, you know, clear guidelines on how to do this, and you know, Amazon is pushing sort of the um, the envelope here by providing sort of reference architectures like the yes. the serverless um, application model, SAM, that they call. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and, and that's helping a lot. And I think there was probably a challenge in adoption with serverless because uh, it can be complicated. You know, you, you, it's it's kind of like uh, getting a giant five-gallon bucket of Lego bricks and no instructions on how to build the Millennium Falcon, right? It just, mm-hmm. it, without guides, it's too much possibility and it's... And that's an interesting point because when you look at Sam and its first incarnation, it really does, it's really visible that it is the first incarnation. And I thought right. that was a really interesting way to approach it. They didn't just take everybody and throw them into the deep end and say, congratulations, learn how to swim as people are frantically splashing around. It was very much a, here you go. And when you look at it, you can clearly see where it's going to progress, but it doesn't just push everybody off that edge. And I thought that was a really interesting step because it could have easily been, here's everything, and figure it out. And they didn't really go that route, which is very empowering. Right, but I think that's part of the fascination of all this serverless movement, right, is that they... I don't think they even know where this will end up. I mean, no one does at this time. And uh, on the other side, what Sam empowers and what uh, the current situation lets you do is to use infrastructure as if it was a library, right? From a developer perspective, I can actually spin up a database with a couple of lines of code, and that's as simple to me as importing another library from a third-party developer. And, and mm-hmm. I don't think it gets more awesome than that. That's that's fair. Well, and the, the speed goes. of deployment is really something that everybody has been focused on because you have so much work that has gone on in continuous integration and continuous deployment. But that doesn't really impact the actual speed of development. And as, as you mentioned, all of a sudden, the speed of development is now increasing and becoming more consistent and more contained and really more defined in a way that it never has been before. And that's, at least from my perspective, super exciting because if you take really smart people and you give them these amazing tools and say, here is your bucket of Legos. Oh, and by the way, here are a hundred blueprints. Go. Absolutely. I mean, it's just, it's almost limitless. What's the motto? Developers never let developers start coding from scratch. (laughs) Nice, nice. And so do you see the series of tools around serverless and the development side increasing in that way, where it becomes more structured in terms of how SAM evolves, but not just SAM, but really the whole community? Because, I mean, if you look at JavaScript, right, and this is a bad example, but JavaScript started as a really solid idea, and it gained a tremendous amount of momentum. And where it really took off was when everybody took the scripts that they were writing in any snippet of code that was reusable and just sort of put it out into the public domain. And it wasn't really done for any reason other than it was developers helping developers and it was the same community contributing. Do you see that happening more to the serverless side as well? And I know there's a lot of parallels there, but it's a much more complex environment and it seems like it's headed down some of that similar similar or some of that same path. Yeah, absolutely. I think the... um Amazon's release of the serverless app repository is a perfect example of that. Um, Initially, probably what's happening is people went and wrote their first Lambda scripts to take care of a common task, and they did it from scratch, and then later they Googled it, and then they found someone had posted something into GitHub, and they took their script and customized it. Uh, And now what the app repository does is it lets you not only take the code for the Lambda function, but also... um, 
all the infrastructure pieces that it requires as well. So if it needs DynamoDB tables or if it needs um, you know, an RDS database or it needs API gateway, um, you don't have to set up all that infrastructure ahead of time and then deploy the script with the app repository. You, know, you can share an entire application and all the resources and infrastructure it needs and a developer can just download it and then customize the little you know, bits that they need for their particular use case. Um, so yeah, it's it's definitely turning into a community and a shared ecosystem. But that's super exciting because the speed of innovation on that just becomes mind-blowing in terms of what you can create and how you can bring new capabilities to market. Right. And when you think about the scale in addition to the speed that's available to do it, it's it'll be fun to watch in the right. next few years as that really yeah. changes because I think we saw an explosion as traditional web technologies evolved and applications really did have very massive growth and evolutionary steps that they took. Right. And now it's like this is the whole right. another wave of it that sort right. of puts that on steroids, if you will. Yeah. It'll be really fun to watch. Yeah. I, I think a great example, and one that Andrea can talk about a little bit, is one of our clients um, that we're building some serverless applications for. Uh, there's a whole user authentication component to it where we have to authenticate users, reset passwords, pass tokens around, all these things. And if we had to develop all that from, from scratch... You know, it could be weeks worth of work. Um, mm -hmm. And now with the scripts that are out there and, and the infrastructure that's provided in AWS. It takes know. less than 30 minutes. I did that yesterday with, as a training exercise with my team and we spin up a completely new service with, uh, to serve downloads and it took perhaps one hour to go from the beginning to the end. From That's incredible. From zero to a fully authenticated with multi-factor authentication, password, recovery, all the, the all the stuff that you came to expect in 2018 uh, from scratch. And uh, that, that is definitely amazing. On the other side, what is still rough is the tooling. Mm. There is a lot of confusion when it comes... Well, f first of all, those blueprints are not so available, so it's not very clear where, what, how you build something in serverless yet. Uh, there is definitely a lot of uh, discovery to be done. There is uh, even the best practices are still in development. But what where I want to go is um, most of the libraries that get used today to build new applications for uh, serverless, uh, they uh, reinvent the wheel, right? or they cover uh, the, the infrastructure as a code that Amazon provides that is, is CloudFormation, and they sort of hide <clears throat> the inner working of that by re-abstracting over the, the resources or com hiding that completely in beyond the command. But on, on the, the price of this uh, simplification is that you lose the vision of 50% of the... Uh, moving parts that are in there. You don't know some necessarily what's are, happening. Some of those are really important. Like uh, some libraries used to uh, require root permissions, right? Uh, full admin access, and that's ridiculous. I mean, you have a system of policies that is super flexible in Amazon, and you want to empower your user to use those. Mm -hmm. So uh, there is work to be done in the yeah. tooling. And I lesson to learn. Yeah. And I think to Andrew's point, one of the, the, the key lessons is that um, to develop complex serverless applications, there's a huge learning curve. 
it takes time it as a developer like to become familiar with the patterns, the tools, the models, the implications. Once you've gotten to that point, once you've sort of been primed, you know, getting to a point where you can develop that application in 30 minutes or an hour, it's doable, right? But you have to do all that upfront work and gain all that knowledge and sort of retrain the way you do things, and that takes time. So are organizations that you're talking to both at a collective level and at an individual level, meaning the people as well as the companies themselves, are they looking at that as a skill that they have to bring in-house in terms of evolving or leveling up their own development teams? Or is that something they're looking to you and your interring group to be able to provide? Or is it a combination of we need to move really fast and we want you to start and then impart that knowledge back to our team? Because that's a really right. delicate balance. Right. Yeah, we get we get actually the full spectrum of it. Um, we have clients on one end that uh, don't have development teams; they have no technical staff whatsoever, um, and they just say, you know, here's the requirements. This is what we want. You guys make it, and and we take on the full brunt all the way from, you know, development to project management to um, the software development lifecycle process to requirements gathering. And, and they don't have that. any interest in that type of a model of bringing any of that skill in-house. No, not at all. They, they, they want to focus on what they're good at and, okay. and building technology solutions often cases is, is, is not that. Right? Okay. You know, they have a product or a service that they offer and that's where they want to be experts, not necessarily in building serverless apps. Okay. So they're perfectly content with, with outsourcing and, and having us handle all of that. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, we have clients that, that um, want as much involvement as possible. And we work very closely with their development teams. You know, they may have 30 developers sitting working on a project and three of us providing sort of expert advice and direction. Um, and, and we're sort of the subject matter experts in the room in those cases. Uh, and then we have cases probably more than the others where we're in the middle, um, where uh, you know, maybe we're leading the project and they're adding in an extra two developers that are getting up to speed and the hope is that by the end of that project they can adopt and, and take the whole thing over themselves. So that's it's cool because that's not yeah, a very typical way of doing it. Typically whenever software applications are developed, it's somebody wants to build it and then they want to hold it and say, well, okay, and then you're going to sign this agreement and we'll continue to maintain and evolve it for you rather than imparting that knowledge into the organization, which is really critical because then everything moves forward faster. Right. It's not like there's a lack of ideas and new opportunities. Yeah. It just, it depends on, on a company's culture and you know, what they value and what's important to them. And you know, that's an interesting point on the culture. Do you see a, commonality in the culture of organizations that are asking you these questions that are asking about net new application development and they're looking at completely rethinking their business like is there some common thread that they exhibit or is it really just the pursuit of a goal and it's to get there as efficiently as possible um i would say there's two common threads uh and it depends on where the company is coming from in in one case uh, the common thread is there's just a business need. We, we want lower cost, more agility, better flexibility, um, you know, or they're trying to solve a problem. We have a problem with our current system and we need to rewrite it or refactor it. Um, you know, so it's coming from like a business perspective or a business need. So, so more defined yeah, in yeah. that way. And in okay. those cases, those, those companies are probably more on the side of the spectrum of um, you guys just handle it, right? On the other end of it, we get companies are coming to us where the technical teams or development teams are driving the relationship. 
they're the ones that want to start moving more towards serverless for its technical benefits, right? Okay. Uh, and in those cases, uh, unlike the business cases, they want to try to retain as much as they possibly can, right? And so they want to leverage us more as you know, subject matter experts, provide training, provide guidance, provide the patterns. Can we you know, bootstrap them with you know, SAM templates and things like that? Um, right. How do I build a continuous integration pipeline? How do I build... There is a lot of uh, knowledge that has to happen if you want to start your serverless. Well, that's got to be a pretty painful process for that organization because what you're really talking about, and again, I don't, I think I might be overly um, extrapolating this, but what you're really talking about at that point is that sort of integration or implementation of a dev, a true DevOps culture, where. All of a sudden, somebody's thinking and acting differently, and inside of that organization, there is now a desire, because obviously they're contracting for this to move forward, so there's a desire it's being implemented, yet that might not be fully understood by everybody involved, where all of a sudden, right. the, the questions become very different. The interaction between those organizations or those groups inside of an organization become very different. Right. That's got to be a very yeah, unique yeah. position for you guys to be in because all of a sudden you're sitting literally in the middle of two groups that used to or have worked together in some way for some period of time. And whether that's good or bad, it is. And everybody then has a level of comfort with it. Sure. And all of a sudden it's like, hey, guess what? This is no longer the way. And that almost is like a flash cut when you get involved because it does change very, very quickly because Absolutely. the whole component, the whole foundation is so fundamentally different. Right. Yeah, it definitely gets interesting. You know, th there's going to be folks on those teams that um, are uh, going to be holdouts. They want to do things the old way. They don't, they haven't bought into the serverless thing. Um, and then there's going to be people on those teams that are all about it. Um, and so we have to navigate all of that. Now, and how I think, do you do that? Because that's a that's a huge cultural issue, sure. and it's one of the big things that I know and you know we see and everybody's reading about that comes up with that culture, that DevOps culture. Do you just put everybody around the table, and is it sort of the like proverbial? No, I wish we could do that. <laughs> <laughs> Sit everybody no, it, out. This is the it, way it's going it, to be. It requires you know meeting with developers and team leaders and project managers on an individual basis. In many cases, it's it's listening to them and providing. Uh, uh, meaningful responses back to them. Uh, I think not being dogmatic about serverless architecture, meaning that that you know we could still come up with cases where a monolithic server-based approach still makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. And and acknowledge it when those cases are there. So it's it's earning trust and and um, credibility with people on both sides of that fence. It also depends on the inflection point at which we got engaged. Um, so, okay. you know, we, what Andrea was talking about, what we mentioned earlier, is that um, there's this massive learning curve to get to a point where you can effectively develop serverless apps. We can get engaged at two sides of that curve. The first one is they haven't really realized that there's a learning curve, and mm -hmm. they they don't really they haven't figured out the implications of it yet. And usually, the the the, the other side is usually where we get engaged is that. Um, they have tried and failed. I was just going to ask that question. For, Does that that sounds very much like they right. have headed down that path and either stumbled in some right. significant way, but not critical way, or they just flat out ran right into the wall. Right, right. And it was and so help. each of those two situations creates kind of this uh, uh, 
feeling in certain developers and, and technical team leads where, well, if they've never done it and they're giving it a try, they're going in sometimes often skeptical or they have uh, misguided uh, views on the benefits, right? Because they, they haven't actually tried it. They don't actually know what the implications are just yet. They just read something in an article somewhere uh, and, <laughs> and they think, okay, we could just do this. And then, you know, it's, it could fail terribly or succeed, you know, wonderfully. You know, on the flip side, uh, and so either they are converted and we have to flip them or, or not. And then the flip side of that is, um, you know, they've tried and they failed. And then they say, see, it doesn't work. We tried, it doesn't work. And we have to go in there and carefully say, well, you did it wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's got to be a very delicate point because if that, when that topic or when that conversation occurs, there are two fundamentally different points, or there really are two fundamentally different conversations. The first is with the business side to recognize that there was a very real investment in whether that is true monetary investment or time they're going to find a way to put an ROI on that. That ROI isn't right. going to be positive. But then the other side of it is on the actual developers right. themselves and the implication of somebody saying, well, thanks right. for trying, but this was all screwed up and everybody's out. Or we have to get a new group of people who have the ability to do this and it becomes a threat to them as well. Right. That's a really challenging point. I would imagine that puts turn group collectively in a very difficult position as you walk in to understand sure. where everybody is because I could see somebody being really defensive and rightfully so very much on edge about their role and their sort of contribution to that transition where something didn't go well to begin right. with. Right. I mean I think the, the good part and I'm, I'm going to let Andrea actually talk about this a little bit is that you know we were developing applications before serverless was a thing. Right, or a reliable way to do this, or a standard way of doing this. So, and our developers that we have at, at, at Turing Group came from jobs where they were building applications in the traditional way. So we had to go through the same process um, of, of educating and converting our own developers. Well, that has to be really cool you then, know. because you actually have been there when somebody is exasperated or is really excited about that opportunity or the potential like you've been there and you know that your team has been there so you can sort of relate to that at a very very personal level definitely and what definitely doesn't work is imposing it i think that's the worst thing uh, we can do with the people that want to learn on the other side what worked very well for my team has been uh, trying to be as pragmatic as possible, right? So if you have to build something, uh, I think the keyword here is to keep it simple. And uh, the simplicity is a very, it's a good term because it's very wide. You can interpret it as much as you want in as ma from as many perspectives as you want. And, yeah, there's uh, big simple and there's little simple. <laughs> at the end of the day, when it comes to go from end to end, serverless is simpler than having an operation team spin up your instance that keeps uh, your application running. So if you bring the team to see this or you bring your trainee to see this aspect, it actually works very well and you, you bring him on board. If you try to tell him that his Ruby application sucks because he cannot run on Lambda, you, you are fighting <laughs> a, a very different fight. On the other side, uh, but if they, the, the other side of the, of the point is how you correct uh, when their application, that what they try to build on serverless is uh, going in the wrong direction. And I think it's the same, in the same way. So you, you show them that something could be made in a simpler way or in a more 
performance uh, fashion and usually people at least 90% of the mistakes that I see in architecture when it comes to serverless are people that are overthinking it and making it much more complex than what it should be. Do you see I that as that they're trying to recreate what they've done in the past and apply Absolutely. it in this new model? Okay, so it's, so as you That's mentioned... That's the number one mistake. As you mentioned earlier, it's adding layers that really don't need to be present. It's sort of almost unwinding that thinking and being able to apply Absolutely. it in a completely new way. Absolutely. I can see where that would be a huge the challenge. number one issue that I see most of the time is overthinking it or creating services that are not needed because there is already something that does it for you or it covers perhaps less than 1% of the... Or you, you just scale around it, don't worry about that. So, right. Also, the whole development model is, is different, like how you run and debug your application. Isn't that kind of a learning curve for them? Yes, and that's where uh, developing for serverless is a little bit of a pain, right? The tools for developing, as I mentioned before, and debugging are not perfect yet, by any means. Debugging Lambda is, it can be painful. You're, you can have errors that come from many different uh, interfaces that are involved with the serverless, right? So you're deploying your application and under the hood it's running in a container in an EC2 instance, God knows where and every one of those interfaces can fail and sometimes it happens and your error message can be pretty complex to interpret. On the other side, it would have happened in your machine too. So It seems like there's a lot of commonality in that, but the flexibility and scalability and the speed once it's internalized and becomes part of the development process and becomes part of the debugging and the integration and deployment processes, it really does then speed up. But it's like anything, it's just that learning curve. It's just a function of where are you and then how committed are you to it? And I think that's really part of it. What it seems like the key is making sure that as people are coming to this new technology and to these new capabilities and methodologies that their understanding it isn't a destination you're not magically there and it's finished it's that you're now on this path and this path is going to evolve i think that's a really interesting point of all of this is that for when somebody does recognize it as a destination that's got to be a pretty humbling moment when you sit down and talk with them and say congratulations but you now are on the start line not the finish line. And they look and say, but I just ran. I just got here. I'm tired. And you mean now I have to really go? That's a that's a right. pretty big transition right. for people. Okay. Andrea, so, actually a quick question for you. You know, given some of the shortcomings, what would you like to see in twenty eighteen in terms of tooling for developers or around process or debugging that would make it a lot easier? Very good question. I want to see a lot of bug ironed out from uh, cloud formation. If we speak AWS, I think the infrastructure need to be much more uh, polite or uh, precise. Uh, I think that the speed to compile a template needs to be improved. Uh, right now, sometimes, if you have your, uh, um, what do you say? It needs to fail faster when, when, it, when it does fail. 
So if sometimes if your continuous integration, you have a continuous integration pipeline set up, uh, it could take 10, 15 minutes to uh, have a failed deployment and uh, that's... That's an eternity. Uh, that's an eternity, exactly. And that's not pleasant to, to work against and sometimes the error message are not helping or uh, they are fairly complex and you just uh, have the type in your template. So those things happen and they're a pain in the neck to, to figure out. So I would love to see that uh, template validation highly improved. Um, some sort of uh, pre-compiled step and some sort of uh, error checking on at the template level as a minimum. Well, those sound like, I mean, obviously those are really critical because they go to the core usability of what the platforms and what those capabilities represent. But those seem like pretty standard learning curve requirements of any technology where as things evolve, they you know there's a maturity level plain and simple, and they just do become more sophisticated and more efficient over time, but it's sort of the price you pay for being on the early side of the equation. Right, but most of the time your IDE or your compiler can figure those things out fairly quickly, uh, and uh, there is not such thing for creating CloudFormation templates right now. Or if there is, it doesn't cover all the possible cases it doesn't cover definitely doesn't cover every single policy that you may have written and definitely doesn't cover environment variables that you may be creating in a template and those are important and those can fail and take 15 minutes to figure out I, I think the difference here too is that in the traditional world when you guys were doing server-based apps you had an infrastructure team and a network team and they handled and absorbed a lot of that stuff Probably. and now you have to mm -hmm. think about deploying a database and understanding what a port is and an IP address is Definitely. and what a policy is and all of a sudden developers have to learn and know about all these other things. The cool part about it is it empowers them, you know, like what he was saying, he can use infrastructure as if it was just a library he was importing. Right. Uh, but it adds just a whole new level of complexity now that, that they have to deal with. The upside to it is we don't need an infrastructure team to support the developers. And that's a really unique balance because that's such a tremendous transition for so many organizations in terms of staffing and skills, where it isn't just having everybody level those skills up. It's that there might be whole departments and whole groups that understand this right. or are familiar with it and are ultimately responsible for it, right. that now that has to be rebalanced inside of the organization. I'm sure that's a very yeah. interesting conversation right. to have with people. It is, for sure. Um, and then this, the other interesting conversation that we end up with a lot of times with clients is that, uh, you know, serverless is a little bit of a buzzword right now. Uh, and uh, clients come to us oftentimes and say, you know, we need something to be serverless, but they don't necessarily know why, or is there, are, are they inventing a problem, right, just mm -hmm. so that they can use serverless rather than so actually have blockchain. Yeah, right. exactly. same thing with blockchain, exactly. You know, in your case, though, Andrea, I think, like, I'd be curious to know what are the things that you're listening for and thinking about in deciding whether an application is better fit to be a serverless-based application versus a server-based uh, application? Because, you know, serverless doesn't solve all problems. You know? um, Most of the time it's uh, the type of work that the application does, right? Some some tasks work very well for serverless, and most of those are, I say, you can think of them as uh, uh, 
pipe, if you wish. It's, those are uh, uh, operations that most of the time are uh, stateless and works very well in a parallelizable fashion. Or uh, you can imagine, I mean, uh, they don't necessarily contain states in, in themselves. Uh, those are perfect candidates for going serverless uh, in the same way as they were perfect candidates for containers. Uh, on the other side, something that doesn't, that takes a long time or uh, very big MapReduce jobs that take uh, a lot of compute time and resources, they, those are probably, uh, well, those are still better on a traditional infrastructure. Are you seeing organizations looking to break those sort of traditional applications up into smaller services? Is that something that they're starting to really think about at a very serious level in terms of what it means for that to evolve? Because it would seem sure. that yeah. you get that sort of, what's worth that legacy application? Or, well, we right. have legacy right. systems, and these systems work, and they get kid gloves because they're legacy. Right. And you know, everybody right. sets them to the side and treats them specially. As opposed to saying, okay, well, how do we take that and break it up into smaller, more For sure. usable pieces? Yeah, I mean, in the same way that you see sort of hybrid installations, for example, in the traditional infrastructure space where maybe we have half of our infrastructure in the data center and the other half's in uh, Amazon's EC2, for example. So they're, mm -hmm. they're sort of split between the two solutions. Um, we definitely see uh, applications, hybrid applications, where maybe there's one or two components that are still running as a server-based application on EC2, and a handful of the services have been moved to Lambda and API Gateway, right? So there's sort of a transition period, um, and and you know, to what Andrea was saying earlier is maybe you take the things that are suited to Lambda and put them in serverless and the things that still need to be server-based, you can do that. And with API Gateway, you can abstract the whole thing. Well, and that's such an interesting point because then it really does bring in exactly what we're talking about, which is that idea that at the development level, you have to have that whole broad set of skills, which is the networking components and all of these other elements that really do come into play in these hyper-distributed environments that were never there before. And now all of a sudden, it's a whole different way of thinking, right. it's a whole different set of skills, which I think ultimately poses a tremendous amount of opportunity for everybody, for you, for customers, for businesses, because you can do things differently, but you have to get into that mindset. Right. I think, you know, I don't want to loop that back in as we talked about that, I think, um, quite a bit, but it re that's really what it does come back down to is what, how do you want to approach it? How do you right. want your organization structured? How will you evolve? Right. And those are those sort of macro business yeah. decisions that go into all of this. It isn't just the... Right. No, it's it's just another tool in our toolbox, and we have to decide when is it appropriate to use, what benefits are we looking for, and, and how can we leverage it given the sort of the context in which it needs to be used for a given client or, or use case. So. Mark that as the wrap. That's absolutely where we're <laughs> stopping at. That was fantastic. Um, what... Oh, there was another announcement at um, reInvent, which was the Aurora serverless. And there were, you know, what, 50-plus announcements over the course of that event, which was just insane. It was like watching a stock ticker as they came out that week. It was just pop, pop, pop. But on the serverless side, we talked about the serverless application repository. From the Aurora serverless side, what are you seeing? How are people embracing, engaging, and thinking about that? Um. 
So I think we can talk about it from two perspectives. One, just from like the business perspective and why does it exist? And then I think maybe from a technical perspective of why it might be beneficial for, um, you know, Andrew and his team when they're doing development. We're not seeing anyone talking about it yet. Uh, I think partially because it's still in preview. Right? Mm-hmm. So not many people have access to it. And I don't think many people have really realized the implications of it. I think Amazon's goal with it is that um, SQL databases have been a uh, a point where the serverless model kind of breaks down. Right? Mm-hmm. There, there's no such thing as yet really a serverless database yet. Right. Um, you know, Dynamo is probably the closest thing you can get. So if you you were writing Lambda functions and you needed a SQL database, it meant you spun up. RDS instances, which are running on servers, and you, know, you had these dedicated. Welcome to the hybrid. Yeah, yeah. Model. You, you had you had this dedicated set of uh, resources that you paid for, regardless of how much they were being utilized. Right? And I think with the um, uh, push of the the serverless version of Aurora, the idea is that you can still connect to a SQL database. Um, but you're only going to pay for whatever resources that you actually use, and so you're not—you don't have 99% sitting idle month to month. Um, and so the idea is that it could address a business case. But I think there might be some technical implications as well. Uh, I think it definitely improves when it, when it comes to. Uh, scaling your database because the, you don't have to consider that as a developer, right? So if my application has success and I'm going from 1 million records to 20 million, I don't have to think about the resizing the instances and all, uh, or, or even to conk that, the, the operation team for, for uh, that task. On the other side, I think it still has a lot of way to go. Uh, it solves some of the technical problems because you have only an entry point and you can consider high availability, you can do transaction over it, which is amazing as far as the developer goes, but it's still not infinite. Mm-hmm. So uh, we'll see where, where that goes. I think right now the limit is 64 terabytes, which is a lot of data, but I have no idea how much well, querying something like that. But that's a lot of data until it's not a lot of data, right? right Based exactly. upon your application. So God knows what yeah. I mean, I, I didn't have the chance to try anything of that size to see what the performance are. And Maybe a select star over sixty-four terabytes is not a good idea, you know. That. <laughs> yeah, well, but. and it's interesting because it is an intersection, and it's something that we're seeing more and more of across technology as a whole. Is it's truly an intersection of consumption at the business case and the billing level, in terms of pay for use or the expectation of pay for use, and then technology, and it's very interesting to watch all of these developments both within the AWS environment, Azure and Google are following very much in line with this as well, sort of very holistically in the cloud sector, where those two pieces are being discussed equally. Where in the past it was sort of one or the other and they were never really married. Those benefits were, I don't know if they were purposely separated, but it seemed like they were because the conversations or any communication was on one side of the equation or the other. And now it seems it's very integrated in the sense that Here's what it's going to do technically. Oh, and by the way, this is the sort of financial or use case mm-hmm. or cost, if you will, wrapper. That's a really interesting development 
because it really does bring everything to light to say, no, these are holistic decisions. Right. Your business is your technology. Your technology is your business. Oh, and by the way, because you're paying for it, we're going to make sure that you think about it in this way. So whether you were fighting against that or not, all of the sort of cloud transition of the industry is gra- grabbing everyone and dragging them, kicking and screaming into that arena, whether they like it or not. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, technology is just the core of at the core of so many businesses today, whether you're a technology company or not. If you're a call center company, you're using, you know, VoIP technology and telephone systems and all kinds of pieces, right, that, that drive your business that you couldn't do without, right? So, yeah, absolutely, technology is at the core. And, um, you know, there, there's always going to be that that um, mix of what are the technical implications and what are the business implications. You know, we, we run across situations all the time where, you know, something from a, specifications perspective is fantastic like as developers we would love that you know we can we can do awesome things for you with that and from a business perspective it just makes no sense right and vice versa right sure <laughs> you know you know we may have business leaders come to us with the most awesome business idea and they can make a ton of money but implementing it from a technical perspective is just simply not feasible right um so they're, they're intertwined and uh you know we engage with all of our clients on that level and consider it from both perspectives and, you know, make recommendations and uh, make decisions based on, on both those things. Cool. Anything else you guys want to add? Anything we missed? I mean, there's probably a gazillion more things to talk about, but yeah, well, we can from for a 30 to 45 minute podcast. We're probably in good place. Excellent. Yeah. Well, Eric, Andre, thank you guys for coming in today. We really appreciate it and peace out. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having us. You got it. Appreciate it.